Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Welcome to The Gallery Gap, a podcast that explores inequity and equity in museums, exhibitions, programming, and collections. My name is Melissa. And I'm Claire. Today we continue our discussion of the Holocaust, art looting, and restitution. As a reminder, we began last week's episode with some background information on these topics and then turned our attention to a conversation we were fortunate enough to have with Dr. Jonathan Petropoulos. He's a professor of European history at Claremont McKenna College, and he was recently at Augustana as part of the Augustana College's Center for the Study of Judaism and Jewish Culture's annual Stone Lectureship in Judaism. Last week, we left off with Jonathan's thoughts on the Monuments Men, and he went on to discuss some of the women involved in the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives programs in the U.S., as well as their counterparts in France. This really got us thinking about other stories from this era that have either gone untold or been told inaccurately. Uh, Claire, you recently watched a movie that addressed this, Denial. Yes, there are a multitude of films that address issues surrounding the Holocaust, the war, and their repercussions. Jonathan spoke about one, The Monuments Men, and we will touch on another in this episode, The Woman in Gold. But I want to take a minute to talk here about the film Denial, because I think that the themes grappled with in this film are not only important for their relationship to history, but also for their relationship to issues we are grappling with in the contemporary moment. So I'm interested, and I haven't seen this. Um, Why don't you tell me, (laughs) why don't you tell our listeners a bit more about it and why you made this connection, why you think it's important? Yeah, sure thing. So the the film is based on the acclaimed book Denial, Holocaust History on Trial by Deborah Lipstadt. And this 2016 film recounts her legal battle for historical truth against David Irving, who accused her of libel when she declared him a Holocaust denier. In the English legal system, in cases of libel, the burden of proof is actually on the defendant, and therefore Lipstadt and her legal team, which was led by Richard Rampton, had to prove that the Holocaust occurred. This film was directed by Mick Jackson, and the film was adapted for the screen by David Hare, and stars Rachel Weiss, Tom Wilkinson, and Timothy Spall. So what is it that interests you most about this right now, like in this moment? Well, for the reason that it touches on the important conversation of the factual reality of the Holocaust, it also speaks to this moment and the politicization of facts, so-called, quote, alternative facts, and I'm using scare quotes here, the post-truth era, and this intentional spread of misinformation and disinformation. Speaking about the film at JW3, the London Jewish Cultural Center, in January of this year, Lipstadt called the film a, quote, metaphor for what's going on in the world today, adding, quote, I don't think any of us thought it would have the contemporary relevance that it has. The moment you start politicizing facts, you are in trouble, and I think that's what we're saying in this film. It does sound um, like a, a fascinating and timely film. And I'm wondering, have you seen The Woman in Gold? You had mentioned it before, or we had mentioned it before. But for those who haven't seen it, it's another film based on a true story that's set in the contemporary moment and deals with the aftermath of World War II and the Holocaust. I have, and it also brings us back to our interview with Jonathan Petropoulos. That's what I was thinking, exactly. So that film deals with the fate of five works by Gustav Klimt, including The Woman in Gold, which was originally owned by Adele and Ferdinand Bloch-Bauer and looted by the Nazis. So after the war, the works ended up in the Belvedere Museum in Vienna, 
And in 2006, Maria Altman, the niece of Adele and Ferdinand, he won a successful lawsuit in a U.S. court against Austria, and the works were returned to Altman and other heirs of the Blockbauer family. Since that point, there has been much talk of hope and possibility in the world of restitution, but the necessity for the 2016 passage of the HERE Act, or Holocaust Expropriated Art Recovery Act, suggests that things are more complicated than they appear. We asked Jonathan to tell us about what necessitated the HERE Act and some of the continuing challenges of this important restitution work. I mean, the field of restitution has been kind of a roller coaster field, that there was tremendous progress, accomplishment in the late 1940s, from 45 to 50. Um, then the Americans, well, they, we, Americans, we had a Cold War to prosecute, and we had other priorities, and we shut down the central collecting point and basically got out of the restitution business. And from the early 1950s until the mid-1990s, um, very little was done on the restitution front. And there were some cases where things went back, but you know, relatively little was done in that that area. Then in the mid-1990s, for a variety of reasons, the issue came back. And the fall of the Berlin Wall, the opening of archives in, in Eastern Europe, uh, a lot of scholarship that was done. Lynn Nicholas wrote a great book um, called Rape of Europa and my own work and others. Um, and then scholarship you know, added to popular awareness. This and the scandal around Swiss banks that they had bank accounts that uh, belonged to Holocaust victims that had never been given back. Um, you know, then there was realization that slave and forced labor from German companies, people had never been compensated. So there was a whole series of issues that made art restitution a, a, a public topic again in the late 90s. And there was real progress. A number of European countries passed laws opening up the archives. That was the case in Austria, uh, the 1998, 1998 law in Austria. And that really made it possible to pursue the case for the Blockbauer Klimt paintings, uh, the six paintings that were claimed, five of which came back. And, and when that case kind of reached its culmination with the arbitration panel in Vienna, ruling that five of them would come back, um, you know, there was a lot of optimism that, that uh, if the Klimt paintings come, could come back, then anything could be restituted, because these were national treasures, right? These were so important to Austrian, Austria's cultural identity and to their tourism industry. And, and, uh, and so many of us in the field were really optimistic, especially the legal precedent said that one could 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 litigate restitution in American courts. And we thought this is very promising because the American legal system is the best in the world for pursuing property of this of this kind. But then there was kind of a backlash um, in the courts. Uh, judges repeatedly, uh, ruled in a way favorable to museums, and museums, their attorneys, were using what many of us call technical defenses. And technical defenses include the statute of limitations. It includes laches, which is why didn't you do something about it earlier? It's a variation of the statute of limitations, but different. It included jurisdiction, choice of law. Um, many times, oftentimes the judges ruled that there was no standing in the U.S. court, and, and especially if the paintings were in Europe somewhere still, even though they had gone through the American art market and there were American heirs, claimants, um, the judges were ruling, no, there's no standing in the U.S. court. Sometimes the museum successfully uh, uh, prevented um, 
uh, information uh, from being entered into evidence. I've had expert reports that I've written excluded from evidence. I've seen documents that haven't been admitted into evidence. These are all technical defenses. And, and really, for, from 2006 to about 2016, um, there was a real loss of momentum. That's the phrase that many in the field have used. That's the phrase that Stuart Eisenstadt, who's been one of the leaders in this area, has used. We, there's loss of momentum. And, and I was always surprised that the museum officials were prepared to use these technical defenses because it didn't seem to be in the spirit of the agreements they made in the late 1990s. And I thought they were risking alienating key constituencies and Jewish philanthropists, for example, where they're playing hardball you know, on these cases. Because oftentimes the cases are not being considered on their merits, meaning you know, in scare quotes there, on whether the works were looted by the Nazis and never and, and, and properly restituted. And instead, they were being decided on what I was calling technical defenses. And I thought, you know, in the late 1990s, the museums really worried about negative publicity in this area. They were really afraid that they would be characterized as the villain. And they seem to have lost that fear. And, uh, you know, I loved it, the film Woman in Gold, because the audiences at the end of the film were cheering for Maria Altman and recovering the paintings. And that's what I want. I mean, we, we want the public on the side of restitution. It's the right thing to do. You know, our museum should not have looted art on the walls. These are tax-exempt, you know, public institutions, and, and they need to do better. And I know that these paintings are oftentimes extraordinarily valuable. I mean, the the... Lady in Gold by Klimt sold for 135 million. Um, you know, we understand that that for museums, these are these are uh, assets that are that have tremendous value. But you still, at the end of the day, have to do the right thing. And I don't blame curators. Um, I think very often they don't want to have looted art in their museums. Um, I think it's the board of trustees of these institutions that aren't providing the guidance, the, the ethical leadership that, that's needed. I think it's the outside counsel, the attorneys who work for these museums, who don't pay attention to ethical issues or previous agreements made by museum leaders. And for these uh, attorneys, all they know how to do is fight fiercely and fight with every tool and resource that they have. So they use these technical defenses. So it, it, it's been really tough going for Holocaust victims and their heirs to pursue the work. There have been some successes. The heirs of the Houtsticker, the Dutch art-dealing dynasty, they've recovered well over 200 paintings in recent years. Over 215 of them came just from the Dutch state, the Dutch government. I mean, actually, the European governments have been doing the best out of anyone in terms of restitution over the last 10 years. The Dutch and sometimes the German, the French, they've done okay, I would say. There have been some real successes, like the, the, the Houtsticker case. But the U.S. court system has really not provided the redress, the the it hasn't lived up to the promise that seemed to be there with a Supreme Court decision allowing Randy Schoenberg, to, the lawyer for, for Marie Altman, for the Black block barriers to go forward. And so now there's uh, some recent legislation from last year, the Holocaust Expropriated um, Art Recovery Act, right? The Holocaust Expropriated Art Recovery Act, HERE Act. Um, and it's a piece of bipartisan legislation. Um, I think it's... Re- 
a remarkable accomplishment. It's supposed to limit the ability of museums to use technical defenses to rebut claims to 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 fend off claims and you know that's what i would like to see is cases adjudicated on the merits on again merits some of my friends who are lawyers say well technical defenses have merits but in this case what we really have to think about is by merits is were the works looted were they sold under duress did the families get the art back at the time that's what we really mean by by merits i don't want to parse words. And so hopefully we have a period now with the HERE Act that, that you know, we'll be able to do the right thing moving forward. And it, it's still such recent legislation, it remains to be seen uh, what's going to happen. But I'm cautiously optimistic that the HERE Act will, will help. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's lamentable, um, you know, all these cases that were uh, basically thrown out due to the technical defenses. Um, we shouldn't be proud of that, um, you know, using these, these technical defenses. I think we'd be a lot prouder as a country and prouder of our legal system if, if, you know, if, it, if it allowed Holocaust victims to, to recover their property. Building off of this, could you share with us a few spaces that you see as future problems in the tremendous task of World War II art restitution? Yeah, there clearly continuing challenges um, for in the field of restitution. Um, one is governments that aren't supportive, aren't cooperative of restitution efforts. And we'd have to start with Russia under Putin. And the Russians have their so-called trophy art, um, approximately 200,000 objects that the Red Army trophy brigades took at war's end. And they're in repositories in Moscow and St. Petersburg and certain monasteries in Russia. And Putin, as a nationalist, as a realpolitiker, he's just not prepared to give these works back. Even though there were early agreements by, the Russian, by Russian officials that uh, if we could show that these works belong to Holocaust victims, they would give them back. The Russians had also committed to creating an inventory of what they had and putting that on the internet. That's never come about. We have no inventory and in, in that. So so working with Russia um, is a real challenge. Um, I think Switzerland still presents challenges too. They've made real progress in terms of you know, addressing their longstanding culture of banking secrecy, but what remains in Swiss bank vaults and in in uh, free ports, um, and some of these free ports like Geneva and what have you, are just filled with looted works and illegally exported antiquities and things of that sort. And uh, it's big business for Switzerland, and uh, and so it'll be a challenge to 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 get a hold of the works that are still in that alpine country. Um, you know, in this country, I always worry about the loss of momentum, too. Um, not every administration cares about Holocaust victims' assets. There's been an inconsistent record, and I worry that the Trump administration will not um, think of this as an important issue, and and we need leadership from the government um, to do the right thing, to work with our allies, especially in Europe. Um, I think there's a, a, a significant amount of Nazi looted art in South America. Uh, at war's end, about 
10,000 Nazis escaped to South America. It's very likely that they took artworks with them, easy to transport, fungible. Um, and so we need to induce South American governments to undertake research and do the right thing. So so just on a political level, there's challenges. And then I'd say the art trade as well. Um, art dealers know so much about where these artworks have gone. And they're not always cooperative with researchers. Um, many art dealers, never them knew about the Gourlet cash um, that Cornelius Gurlitt was selling off works through these through the art trade, and they didn't share this information with researchers in the restitution field. Um, most art dealers will not open their archives to researchers. Um, the information is proprietary, um, sensitive information, they would say, and you know, without access to art dealers' archives, we're limited in what we can do. And I hope the art trade will be more cooperative and be partners and, and work with us. Um, you know, same with auction houses. You know, what do they do when they have a work that's consigned to them that they discover is Nazi looted art? I think in most cases they try to work out a settlement, but they're not obliged to come forward to the public and say, hey, we've got looted art here. They can send it back to the consigner and say, sorry, we won't, we won't sell this. And that happens in some cases. And you know, ideally, I think we'd have some rule that when the auction houses know that they have Nazi looted art or any looted art, um, they should have an obligation to come forward and report it in some ways. And, and so the art trade has presented some challenges for for researchers. And I have friends who are art dealers, and they're wonderful people. And again, some do cooperate, but not enough. And and so that's a continuing challenge, too. So we're seeing real progress in terms of researching Nazi looted art. Technology is a great friend, is a great asset. And, you know, the computer, uh, databases, uh, you know, digitization. Um, this has all been extremely positive uh, and, and, and facilitated research. And, and I hope that the field of provenance researcher will be a growing one, that, that recent masters in art history students and PhDs and others will go into provenance research. I hope that it'll be common for museums to have a provenance researcher or researchers plural, and, and, and that you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make real progress in this area. It's possible to do that. But as I said, there, there are still challenges that remain. And that wraps up our interview with Dr. Jonathan Petropoulos. Once again, we would like to thank Jonathan for taking the time to speak with us on this podcast and really for all that he does in the field. Be sure to join us next week as we explore the beauty and chaos that is motherhood and specifically the reality and balance or imbalance of motherhood as a practicing artist just in time for Mother's Day. A quick shout out to a friend of the Gallery Gap, Molly Sutton, an artist and art therapist who just joined the ranks of motherhood with the birth of her daughter, Elizabeth Frances Sutton. So congratulations, Molly, and welcome to the world, baby Elizabeth. We miss you, Molly, and look forward to meeting you, Elizabeth. Indeed. Just a few reminders, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play, or you can listen to the episodes on WVIK's website. There's an email on the website in case you'd like to contact us, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook. As always, thank you to the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, the Figgy Art Museum, and WVIK for your continued support of this project. 
A special thanks to our production team, Lacey Scarmana and Alfredo Manteca. And this podcast would still just be a mere idea if it wasn't for the generous sponsorship of Paterson Pates Design. Thank you so much for making this program possible. And last but not least, thank you to all our listeners. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.